Welcome everyone to another episode of Poem Peeps. We're extremely excited for this episode, which is a new collaboration between Poem Peeps and the ATS RCMB Assembly. The RCMB Assembly is a respiratory cell and molecular biology assembly, and it is focused on researchers and trainees that participate in both basic and translational lung biology research. Firth, are you ready for our first dive into the world of basic science research on Poem Peeps? Yeah. Hey, Monty. I am ready. I'm a little intimidated, as I always am when I'm with basic and translational science, but I'm also really excited. Obviously, basic and translational research is foundational for all of us to understand pulmonary pathology. And ultimately, these major breakthroughs are always starting in this way. And so it's great for us to understand a little bit more about it. Monty, have you done any basic or translational research? Great question, Firth. And honestly, I have not, but you know, my clinical focus now is on clinical research in adult in adult CF. And without basic and translational efforts in that field, obviously I couldn't be doing my work. And and as everyone knows here, there's been so many advances in both the basic and translational researchers within CF in general. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I remember I did some basic research back in medical school. And and what's funny is it was on something I still remember is connections, like between cells. And it was very minor stuff, but I also somewhat like the most accomplished I ever felt when I'm like, oh, I figured this one problem out. So we're going to hear about people who are much more successful at it than sounds like either of us were. <laughs> so before we, without boring people anymore about our failed attempts <laughs> or ongoing attempts, let's meet our guests. So first we have Dr. Mark's Snyder. Mark is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and a member of the graduate program in microbiology and immunology there. He does research on the role of the adaptive immune system's role in chronic rejection after lung transplantation. He's received both a Parker B. Francis Foundation Award and an NIH K-23 grant for this work. It's a real pleasure having you on the show, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Long time listener, first time caller. And I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up CF though. This is perfect segue because that's one of the gold standard wins for for pulmonary medicine for collaborations between clinical and, and basic science. So Totally. And so, so glad to have you on the show today, Mark. Next, we have Dr. Jonathan Alder. Jonathan is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. His research focuses on telomeres and their role in human health and disease. He's also an accomplished researcher and was also a Parker B. Francis Fellow and now has an NIH R01 studying telomere-mediated lung disease. It's a true honor and privilege to have you on the show today. John, welcome to Palm Peeps. Christina, Dave, thanks for having me. This this is fun and I look forward to it. I should say this is actually my first podcast. So let me know if I'm doing anything wrong and how to share my slides. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, just let, we'll let, give you the floor for the next 45 minutes <laughs> talking through. I love it. Uh, well, we'll make sure you're not on mute, John. Yeah. <laughs> they want to make sure I am on mute. Right, right, potentially. We can always edit it out after. Don't worry. <laughs> So just before we dive in, as our standard disclaimer, this podcast is not meant for specific medical advice. The views we express don't necessarily reflect those of our employers. If we talk about any patients, we've changed some details and all the data is HIPAA compliant to protect their privacy. Thanks, Murph, and so excited to dive into our discussion today with our experts. And before that, though, I want to present a common patient scenario to set up our conversation. And this is typically a patient that we may be seeing in clinic or in the inpatient setting. But for, for today, we're going to be meeting a 51-year-old gentleman who's in, being seen in pulmonary clinic. He went to his primary care physician three months ago with progressive dyspnea on exertion that's been worsening over the past two years. 
but really limiting him the most in the past six months. So now he's saying that he has dyspnea even with walking to the mailbox, which is about 200 feet, um, and has to stop to rest. So this is a, a big difference for him in the last six months. He also had a worsening dry cough that really bothers him. Past medical history is notable for him being a former smoker. He did smoke about one pack per day for 10 years, but he's now quit over 21 years ago. As far as family history, that's important for our listeners today. He did, does have a family history of lung disease. His father, grandfather, and uncle on the father's side all were diagnosed with farmer's lung, and he's worked on the same farm as well. So his primary care doctor did a progressive workup, and ultimately he had PFTs that showed a restrictive ventilatory defect with a moderate reduction in his TLC, FRC, and RV, and a moderate reduction in gas exchange, or, but that being his DLCO. As far as diagnostics, he did have a chest x-ray and then a CT scan that was not a specific ILD protocol, but did show some peripheral basilar predominant clusters of 5 millimeter cystic airspaces subplurally, as well as traction bronchiectasis. So in addition to the diagnostic imaging that he had, he had some lab work that was notable for macrocytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and a mild persistent transaminitis and ALKFOS elevation. With that, he did have a broad serologic workup sent prior to seeing us, and that was all negative, as well as a negative hypersensitivity pneumonitis panel. So as you can see, he has a lot of things going on, some lab abnormalities, some imaging abnormalities, and he's been seen by various pulmonologists who have tried him on potential therapeutics, including prednisone and mycophenolate, both without any significant improvement in his symptoms. On physical exam, he desaturates to 82% with ambulation. He has no peripheral clubbing. He does have some crackles and squeaks bilaterally on auscultation, about one-fourth up his lung fields. He is using two liters of supplemental oxygen at rest and five liters with exertion and still continues to report today that his dyspnea has been rapidly progressing over the last few months. So Mark, I know I just gave a lot of information, but but based on what I just discussed, what, what do we have here and what diagnosis and thoughts do you have initially about this patient? Yeah, no, this is not an uncommon presentation to our pulmonary clinics, right? This, this presentation of of dyspnea with exertion is pretty broad differential, right? That includes pulmonary, cardiovascular, hematology, like whether anemia or even just deconditioning, right? But all the clues that you gave me are, are pointing very clearly to a pulmonary source of this dyspnea and that based on the imaging and the restrictive ventilatory pattern, this looks like an interstitial lung disease. More specifically, this, this pattern of traction bronchiectasis with what appears to be honeycombing by description points very heavily towards IPF. Now, it would be nice to have one of these high-resolution CT scans to, to look for any ground glass opacification, signs of active inflammation or alveolar filling, right? But the thing that stands out most to me here is, is this family history, right? So this family history of quote-unquote farmer slung, right? What, what is that, right? Is this Was this a hypersensitivity pneumonitis or, or is this something perhaps that's being passed on from generation to generation as far as an inherited predisposition for pulmonary fibrosis. I think figuring out a little bit more about this family history might be helpful. And, and on top of that, start thinking about if this is a family, is this is an inherited form of, of interstitial lung disease or pulmonary fibrosis, maybe we should start getting genetic testing and, and check telomere length. Some of the more common forms of, of inherited factors predisposing to pulmonary fibrosis. 
Yeah, this is great, Mark. And I like a couple of points just to highlight, as you said, one, it's true that this type of presentation is not uncommon, unfortunately, right? Because a lot of people get to a specialty clinic like this really late in their course, right? And where we do a lot of work, we have another episode about ILD, you can listen to about trying to get these people in earlier. And then the second thing is, like you say, ILD clinic is a lot like detective work, right? Like you hear this farmer's lung, the family has it. Is it farmer's lung? Could it be something else? And so I love that you're like making these connections based on what the patient's telling you. I feel like this is what happens in real time in ILD clinic, which is why new patient appointments are always one hour and never shorter than that. Right. <laughs> you mentioned thinking about telomeres in this case, and I want to dive into that a little bit more. John, can you remind us what telomeres are and the potential role that they play in health and disease? Sure. I think most people remember telomeres are these funny caps on the end of our chromosomes. They're composed of this sequence, TTA, GGG, repeated hundreds or thousands of times. And when you think telomeres, you should think two things. They do two jobs. First, they suppress the DNA damage response, right? So the end of a, a linear chromosome looks just like a broken piece of DNA. So the first thing they do is they block those chromosome ends from being recognized as, as broken pieces of DNA. But they also have this important job in replicative senescence. And I think that's where that drew the attention of a lot of researchers. So as cells divide, we're, they're incapable of, of copying the very end of their telomeres. And so what happens is in each replication, the chromosome gets a little bit shorter. And telomeres solve that problem by building this essentially junk sequence, TTA, GGG, onto the end of a chromosome. And each time a cell divides, a little telomere sequence is lost, but that's okay. It doesn't encode for a protein. And so these are important buffers and solve what we call the end replication problem. So in humans, when there are defects with telomeres, they can cause a spectrum of clinical problems that are largely dictated by telomere length. Patients born with extremely short telomeres develop diseases, infants and adolescents, and individuals born with Short telomeres, but not extremely short, often develop disease as adults. And as Mark mentioned and was brought up, lung disease is one of these phenotypes and by far the most common. Thanks so much, John, and such a great review of telomeres for us today and definitely something that I needed. So definitely appreciate going through that kind of basic framework so that we can set up and understand potentially what's going on with our patient. And Mark, you mentioned that you were concerned about short telomere in our patient and potentially causing his lung disease. And I imagine that you think about this diagnosis often in your clinical practice. And I'm hoping if you can share with us today, what are some things that trigger you to think about telomeres for your ILD IPF patients? And a follow-up question is, is it all patients with ILD or only those with certain findings? So, so these are great questions. And we're still trying to figure out a lot of this. This is, this is, this field has grown very rapidly over the past couple of years. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of it due to the work by, by Dr. Alder here, associating telomere length with the risk of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And on top of that, interstitial lung diseases, because we are finding a shorter telomere, telomere length in these non-IPF patients. Now, looking specifically at idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, right? If you look at that cohort of population, right? We define short telomere length as let's say less than 10th percentile for the age associated shortening of your telomere length, right? But if you look at the cohort of all idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis patients, and Dr. Alder can attest to this more succinctly than I can, but they're all short, 
right? So if you look at the distribution of telomere length, that distribution is a median of about 25th percentile with the tail going up to the 50th percentile, right? So, so we're enriched for this short telomere population. So I, I have a low threshold to think about telomere length when a new patient comes in with, with advanced interstitial lung disease. Now, the things that might lead me to think more prominently of, of telomere length mediated factors of, 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 of risk for IPF, if they've developed pulmonary fibrosis at a younger age, if they have this family history of pulmonary fibrosis or family history of bone marrow failure at a younger age in other relatives, right? In, in addition to that, other other laboratory values might might lead me to su suggest that telomere length might be playing a role here, right? So cytopenias, right? Not necessarily bone marrow failure, but but thrombocytopenia along with pulmonary fibrosis or any any liver abnormalities. These are things that would heighten my my index suspicion. It's so interesting. Right? It's so cool to see here how things develop rapidly in, in pulmonary in critical care in medicine in general. But I, I remember in residency, this was like, oh, you have the one patient who got gray at 40 and his dad got gray at 45 and he's got pancytopenias and liver abnormalities. Like, let's think about telomeres. And now we have this understanding that it probably plays some role in a broader ILD IPF population. And so it's just very interesting to hear how the work progresses like actively through your career and you have to kind of keep up with it so that we're taking the best care of these patients. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can't agree more. That That's so great. And Mark, to go back though, if we are concerned about a telomere disorder, what further clinical and laboratory tests would you recommend being done? Yeah, no, no it's, a, it's a great question, right? So as I mentioned before, right, the cell counts are, are vital, right? So cytopenias, but these are usually sent by the time a patient is in front of you, as are the liver function testing. At this point, the, the two additional tests that are typically not thought of prior to referral to your, your ILD clinic is genetic testing and telomere testing. Telomere testing specifically, the most accurate way via Flowfish, which it has been the most precise way to measure telomere length. Now, as far as genetic testing, it's not just telomeres, right? So there's other genetic, there's other mutations that can lead towards IPF, right? MUC5B mutations, mutations in surfactant protein C. There's a, there's a long list of both common and rare variation variants that lead towards uh, predisposition towards early development of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. I, I would say though that on, on admission here from this history, that the, the primary care physician did a, did a good job or, or, or pulmonologist that sent all this testing. The hypersensitivity pneumonitis panel, I, I no longer send these for patients because as far as the post-test probability of, of changing my index suspicion for HP, it, it really doesn't help for me. But I, I know that's an area of contention right now. And, and I know there's those that probably disagree with me on that. Gauntlet thrown on palm peeps. We'll, uh, we'll have to have a debate episode right. on it. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. And this will probably be the only time in my career that I agree with with Mark Schneider. <laughs> but yeah, so Mark summarized it well. I just was going to add, there, there are out, out there are a lot of methods to measure telomeres because I think there's a lot of interest in this right now. During the Super Bowl, there's advertisements to get your telo years measured. So, right, this is everywhere now. And so there are lots of methods out there. I think, and Mark said this, Flowfish has been the best characterized and validated in the clinic. And so full disclosure, I spent a lot of time building a, and working at a Flowfish clinic at Hopkins. 
And the second thing, and I just, again, I, I was going to mention about Flowfish. Flowfish typically returns telomere length measurements in a couple of hematopoietic compartments. So you may get, for example, granulocyte or lymphocyte. And in the early days, we used to say when a patient's telomeres were below the first percentile, that was highly correlated with a genetic or a germline variant in one of the telomere maintenance genes. But as time's gone on, and you, and you referenced this, Dave, that things have changed a lot. And now that we have a lot of genetic information and telomere length, we, we found a lot of patients that actually fall below the 10th percentile and above the first percentile. And so I don't think these measurements should be seen as, as hard numbers. So basically, if, if you're at the ninth percentile, should you say this is not a telomere patient? Because we find some that still do. And when it comes to genetic testing now, this has become a huge business and, it, and, the, and the price continues to fall. Hmm. And there's, there are now several panels of genes you can order. You can order them from a pulmonary side, which will include some of the genes that, that outside of the telomere, surfactant genes and others, or you can order telomere specific panels. Almost all these panels will include the four main ones that I always think about, TERT, the reverse transcriptase of telomerase, TR or TERC, which is the RNA component, and then helicase RTL1 and PARN, another enzyme involved in the process. I think this is a good place for me to say I'm not a doctor, <laughs> I'm one of the useful kind. And so I'm not making any recommendations here. The thing that I've learned along the road is that genetic testing has implications, both from a medical side. It's, it's, I think it would be great to have a definitive diagnosis, right? You're looking at a patient with farmer's lung and you're saying, what's causing this? Is it pesticides or is it genetics? So from that side, genetics can be great, but it has implications for the patient, for their family, and even their capacity to buy health ins life insurance. And so making sure that the patient is fully informed, working with genetic counselors or a, a medical geneticist, I think is really important. So I'm not making recommendations here. I'm giving warnings that there's a lot of things that I don't even think about here that are important. And now many of the mutations in the, we talked about this at the beginning, but I want to come back to this. And this is a source of confusion. So we have to be careful how we say it. In these patients, disease is not caused by the genetic mutation. It's caused by the telomere length. Hmm. So what happens is as shorter telomeres are inherited across generations, that in a single family, you can see different clinical phenotypes, right? Grandparents can present with pulmonary fibrosis. Children can present with liver disease and grandchildren can present with bone marrow failure. Okay. So you might say, hey, what's wrong with it? I'm not thinking genetics. There's only a single individual with IPF here, but what's driving disease here is the telomere length. And so knowing what that is can be really important for understanding the disease. Oh, that's great. I'm going to emphasize and say thank you, Dr. Alder. <laughs> you are a doctor in my mind very much. So. The useful kind. <laughs> or the most useful kind. It's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's super helpful. And it's super helpful to think about those clinical correlates. Like if you're seeing a patient, it's not just a family history of one thing. And it's also really always a, a helpful reminder for me of like, think of genetics in the entire picture, right? It's genetics leading to some molecular event, which is leading to some phenotype. And so it's not just the one mutation, but it's the telomere length. That, um, that's going to be a big takeaway for me. So 
I love having this clinical understanding of it, thinking about what, how we can apply this to our patients. We have the ATS RCMB Assembly's mission statement is to impact morbidity and mortality by improving the understanding of the biological basis of lung disease. And I feel like that's what we've been discussing so far, but it's easier said than done to now have this. Now we have you telling us as an expert and, and we understand it, but we have to get to that through lots of years of experiments and investigation. So John, can you tell us broadly how telomere length and repair ended up leading to lung disease, like sort of in a pathophysiologic way? Yeah, honestly, I think in the beginning, this was really hard to understand, right? I'm just gonna say, when I think about telomeres and the end replication problem, so that cells that divide rapidly will shorten their telomeres quickly. And so, Bone marrow failure kind of makes sense to me, right? We make billions of cells every day. Telomeres should be short there. And so I don't think the connection to lung disease was necessarily intuitive. In fact, I think it was very unintuitive. It wasn't an obvious connection. How the understanding the mechanism and why that the lung is sensitive is an area of active research. But I think for me, the big picture goes back to these early experiments. So telomere length determines the number of time a cell can divide before it's, it arrests, it enters replicative senescence. In the lung, this plays out as the inability to repair after injury. So we go throughout our life, we get colds, we breathe stuff, whatever happens, but the, the ability of the lung to repair itself eventually is limited. Now, how this leads to a fibrotic scarring is still being worked out, like the mechanisms that connect these. But I think the general mechanism of how telomere dysfunction limits the ability of a cell or a stem progenitor cell to replicate and how that might limit tissue repair is pretty well understood. Thanks, John. And I really love how you just described that. And, and I think hearing this again, and probably as I, as I hear it on repeat, the, in the lung, as you said, this plays out by the inability of the lung to repair itself after injury. And I think hearing things differently kind of really helps me understand this disease manifestation even more. And I, and I know that you feel like we're giving giving you all the hard questions and Mark, the easy questions, John, but I, I do have that one. <laughs> we're handicapping a little. <laughs> John, I do have one more question for you. This goes back, I know you alluded to some of this earlier, but when thinking about doing basic and translational research and science, it's often not you often don't know where to start, right? So I'm hoping that you can provide a little bit more discussion on the starting place of how some of the, the groundbreaking work was done between telomeres and IPS. Sure. So historically, I think the connection between lung disease and telomeres was made using two approaches. The first was at Johns Hopkins and Dr. Mary Armanios was a clinical observation, meaning she was taking care of an individual with bone marrow failure in a pediatric setting and in talking to the patient and learning about them found that they had aunts and uncles that had pulmonary fibrosis and it stuck out to her right i don't know exactly what what went through her head but i imagine she probably saw thought i have a super rare disease in one individual and several other instances of super rare diseases in these other individuals all clustering in a family and that prompted her to contact Vanderbilt, where they had this registry of familial IPF and to sequence the telomere-related genes. So it was a clinical observation that she then connected to the telomere. 
And to be honest, I will never forget the morning when we got the sequencing results back and I was sitting in the lab with her and we were going through these and we found all these changes and we said, this can't be real, right? There, I think there was almost one fifth, so 17% in that first pass. And we hoped to find one or two and it, it, it was a surreal morning. Around the same time, there was another group led by Dr. Christine Garcia. I think she was in Texas at the time. And they used a classic positional cloning or linkage analysis to find it. So this is when you have a big family and several affected people and unaffected individuals. And you examine their DNA and you say, okay, what chunks of DNA do all of the affected individuals share and the unaffected individuals don't? And so that letter to a linkage peak an area of, of DNA that was shared amongst all of the common, in, all of the affected individuals, and that included TERT, this gene. And so these two approaches are complementary and really are a nice example of how an astute clinical observation can be all it is required, but also kind of this familial classic genetics approach. And these two things really locked it in and said, okay, we've got something here. And so since then, lots of additional studies have been done. Nowadays, I feel like it's very common to jump right to the exome sequencing or genome sequencing. And, and in these large studies that have been done now, it's now 10 to 15% of unselected patients. You can find rare variants in these telomere maintenance genes. John, it's super exciting to hear you talk about that day. And I kind of feel like stories like that, like I have chills a little bit, are like why people get into medicine, right? They see a patient, they notice something, it leads to a discovery that then goes back to the lab and then then translates all this way back up to patient care. So it's so interesting to hear the history about it. And and such Dr. Garcia and Dr. Amanias obviously titans in the field of figuring these things out for everyone. So, John, I know you do a ton of work on this, trying to investigate the mechanisms behind the telomere and the disease they create. Can you tell us what type of laboratory studies they use? I think this is an area where a lot of physicians, MDs, are, are really underinformed about what kind of techniques are out there that we can that we can use to figure out these molecular mechanisms of disease. Great question. And again, I I love this area. This is why I'm I'm doing what I do, and I. I want to emphasize that anybody who wants to research this, any method out there is okay, right? In our lab, we use whatever we need to address the question. But specifically, there are a lot of groups working on this now that are trying to understand the very sensitive and specific connection between the end of your chromosome and lung disease. I think the connection to telomeres is an important leap forward. One of the biggest struggles that I think we face is kind of in the community in general is, is kind of apathy or disinterest in, in I, my concern is genetics, but you could say research. Here's what I think is so striking to me, and I love that Christina brought this up at the beginning, was pulmonologists of any group of physicians um, have one of the greatest wins arguably a miracle in precision medicine with the example of cystic fibrosis, right? For years, genetic analysis of individuals with cystic fibrosis was part of their care. I don't think, I, I didn't care for any of these patients and I don't know the exact workup for how you go from suspected CF to a diagnosis, but I think for many years, patients were sequenced even though it's a clinical diagnosis, right? You can do, I think it's called a sweat test where you examine 
Nonetheless, the genetics informed research. And I don't think 20 years ago, people said we need to sequence CFTRs so that we can find different classes of mutations and then design drugs so that eventually we'll sequence patients and pick specific drugs for the types of mutations they had. I don't think anybody saw that coming. And yet that information drove the precision medicine therapies that we have now for these patients. So remembering that same vision of looking forward, right? We may not have an answer today, but that doesn't mean we won't have one tomorrow. Right now, we need the information. We need to know, are there classes of mutations, right? Are patients with TERP mutations going to be slightly different than patients with RTL1 mutations, such that drugs can be treated? I know there are groups that have worked on potential therapies for individuals with PARM mutations. And so having that information, I think, will really drive the next generation of drugs or in, in, interventions for these patients. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that addressing that sort of apathy is part of the reason that I feel like the eight, this assembly is so important. Part of the reason we want to discuss this in the show, right, is to get people motivated, interested in this stuff. Because like you said, the CF, like that paper, the papers on CF now are like the dream studies that you look at. So we yeah. could get similar outcomes for other diseases. It'd be amazing. Before we go further, Mark, you, this all sort of started because you told me about a, a sort of interesting case. It's just like fellowship. Mark used to come in and be like, Dave, what do, you, what do you think about that? He was telling me he was older. He was teaching me. So I'd be like, Mark, I have no idea. No, no, no. no. I was so, asking advice. Yeah. Mark is very old. Mark is very old. Yeah. Well, listen, we should get to tell him your length and then we can see where we're at. Yeah, right. But Mark, can you tell us about this, this two patients that I think that you met? Yeah, so th so this this is a, for a patient that came in to be evaluated for a lung transplant. So I'm probably, first and foremost, I'm a transplant pulmonologist. So quick plug, it's an amazing job, right? We get to see a whole variety of end stage lung disease, and you get to Monday morning quarterback. I would have done this five years ago. Different. Don't tell the patient that, but you do it in your head. But uh, so this is a patient, 48 year old man, never smoker. Okay, so he was referred to us. He already had a known TINF2 mutation. TNF2 mutation. And he had very advanced pulmonary fibrosis that was rapidly progressive, right? On top of that, he had known bone marrow dysfunction with recurrent cytopenias. So he came to our clinic for an evaluation for lung transplant. He had been turned down every place else, right? Pro mostly because of these concerns of this bone marrow failure, right? He had a biopsy showing hypocellularity, bone marrow biopsy showing hypocellularity, but there was no evidence of myelodysplastic syndrome or any precancerous lesions. So how is he first diagnosed with TNF2 mutation? Well, his, his family history. I mean, his father, his uncle, his twin brother, all diagnosed with dyskeratosis congenita. Twin brother actually required a bone marrow transplant at a very young age, unfortunately died from postoperative complications. And so he was referred to us, like I said, pretty advanced disease, two liters per minute, supplemental oxygen at rest, five liters with any minimal exertion. He was initially evaluated. So we have a, a clinical trial at University of Pittsburgh of combined lung and bone marrow transplant, right? And so, so the goal for this trial is to address person, people just like this patient, right? People with combined pulmonary fibrosis, bone marrow failure, with the added benefit of a potential induction of, to of tolerance of the, of the transplanted organ. Right. This is groundbreaking work from David Sachs, MGH, Megan Sykes over at Columbia, like trying to induce tolerance by, by chimerism. Right. Your mark goes again on the immunology stuff. T cells are the most important cell in the human body. I think it's been clearly documented. So so he went into this 
And we, we pr- approach this, this, this gentleman knowing that he is likely going to have bone marrow failure after transplant. So we did all the things we could do to preserve that bone marrow. We, we used a more gentle induction immunosuppression rather than a grenade of alemtuzumab. We used basiliximab. And we carefully selected his maintenance immunosuppression after transplant to avoid those commonly used medications that induce cytopenias, right? So we avoided valcite. We used the instead for CMV prophylaxis. We, we avoided cell cycle inhibitors like Celsept, Myfortic, or Amurant. We went right to combined calcineurin inhibitor and costin blockade with Velitacept along with prednisone. And he did so well after transplant, right? We, everybody was ex- waiting for the moment that his bone marrow was going to crash and he was going to have all these infectious complications. We were waiting for it and it never happened because of our anticipation, because of knowing what problems we, we anticipated, we are able to prevent all of these adverse effects. And, and he's doing well. Three years after transplant, he's, his FEV1 is 83% predicted. He's had a paucity of rejection. He has no signs of chronic rejection. And he is, he's a win of genetic testing, driving our clinical decision-making and, and preventing bad things from happening. Hmm. That's amazing. It's an amazing clinical story. Also highlights some topics we have to cover. We were planning on doing lung transplant here. And then also I want this bone marrow and combined lung transplant is a pretty amazing trial. I'd love to hear more about that. As you just said, this case highlights when we know about a telomere-related mutation and it's influencing our care of a patient. So we started with a case where we have suspicion and then we're trying to identify it, but now we know about one kind of de novo because of the family history and prior genetic testing. So John, I want to ask you, is it common with these types of telomere disorders to have sort of like a very variable penetrance like this? Like his twin brother needed a bone marrow transplant at a young age, and he he obviously was not old when he started having these manifestations, only 48, but much older than that. And and I'm wondering if we know if it is common, what kind of factors influence how clinically relevant the mutation is and how it becomes a, a phenotypic manifestation. Yeah, Dave, I'm a little nervous discussing this case because I do think it might contribute to people saying, hey, see, genetic testing doesn't matter. This individual had a TNF2 mutation and yet they're doing great. So why would I do genetic testing? So I'm worried this is an important case, but it does bring up some 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 tough questions. Sure. So the short answer to your question is yes, incomplete penetrance of clinical phenotypes does happen in these families. And the reason for that is an area of active research where people are trying to understand. In the case of TNF2, for example, these individuals typically have the shortest of the short telomeres, hmm. typically manifest or succumb to this clinical phenotype we call dyskeratosis congenita, which is kind of the, on the severe end of the short telomere phenotypes before they're 10 years old. Now, we've reported some of these cases in their bone marrow they acquire some mechanism that protects them from the short telomere phenotype so that their bone marrow survives and can escape, but the rest of the tissues of the body can't. So all of these things can happen and it makes it complicated. But I still remember when they told me they were evaluating this patient and I, I, didn't, I don't weigh in on these things, but in my head, I'm just like, this is going to be a train wreck. This is not going to go well. Like TNF2 patients, they have these telomeres that when we go to measure them, they're so low or like, did the assay work? I mean, they're just super short. So 
we don't know the mechanism in all patients that's responsible for the variable penetrance, right? Where some patients develop disease earlier. We have seen cases where the environment can drive a phenotype to happen earlier. So for example, if you have siblings that both have the same genetics, but one of them is a smoker, you might see disease earlier in those individuals. So for some, we can kind of point our finger at that and say, hey, an environmental exposure changed how this disease presented itself. But the, the, the short answer in the answer to your question is yes, variable penetrance is common and we don't fully understand why that is. Thanks so much, John. And I, yeah, I didn't realize that the clinical impact of having a TINF2 mutation and that, as you said, kind of was the shortest of the short telomeres. So thank you for, for teaching us that today. And coming back to the patient, Mark, when a patient like this who has IPF with a known history, familial telomere disorder, does this change the way that you decide to treat their disease? Yeah, no, no, I, I, absolutely. However, I have to qualify that with there, there's not much research guiding us uh, on these decision making. This is a, still an evolving field, right? Now you can anticipate, I think part of the management of these patients is anticipating what can go wrong, right? So one of the best papers to help us predict what can potentially go wrong in this population was post hoc analysis of the Panther IPF trial. Just to, re just to remind you, I think, I know we all know the Panther IPF trial, but just a fresh, just quick refresher. So Panther IPF looked at a combination of azathioprine, N-acetylcysteine, and prednisone versus N-acetylcysteine alone or placebo in patients with IPF. And it was, and this, the study clearly showed that there was harm in the immunosuppression group, right? So the treatment of IPF with N-acetylcysteine, azathioprine, and prednisone led to increased mortality and hospitalization in, in that IPF cohort, right? Now, Christine Garcia, Dr. Christine Garcia, now at Columbia University, provided an incredibly helpful study, which was a, a analysis of that Panther IPF cohort looking at their telomere length. And, and, and what her team found was that it was really those patients with short telomeres that were driving the increased mortality in that treatment arm, right? Suggesting that, you know, what we know now, right? These patients are, are prone to bone marrow failure, right? And so if we give a medicine that's going to put you at increased risk for reduced bone marrow output, those patients are going to do worse, right? Yeah. So what we typically favor is avoiding immunomodulation in this in this IPF cohort, right? So this is the cohort where when they come to see me at lung transplant clinic, I know they have short telomeres and their prior providers have put them on CELSEF or prednisone. I reach out to the provider and say, hey, we've done this telomere testing. You might want to reconsider that. You know, this, this could potentially harm the patient while we're waiting to, to work them up for lung transplant, right? So, you know, Ultimately, as John alluded to, right, it's it's in addition to avoiding the immunosuppression and avoiding the immunomodulation, these are patients that I have a very low threshold to consider for lung transplant. And so we like them referred to our transplant clinics early because there's less options for these patients. There's less less things that we can do to help prevent the progression of disease. That's great. I mean, it's a real example of sort of precision medicine, right? Like we have this trial is negative, but it's really driven by a cohort. If we know something about the broad disease you have, and we know some of the mechanisms below it, we can sort of tailor our therapies to, to maximize benefit or, or sort of avoid harm. So that's really interesting. 
So, you, Mark, you know, you mentioned that this is obviously going to affect a lot of considerations for transplant. We're going to try to follow people early and have them for consideration since our treatment options are limited. I know you also do a lot of research on factors affecting chronic rejection in transplant. So I'm curious if these have clinical implications for lung transplant that you are following even down the road in these patients. It's a, it's a really good question. And there's a lot of work going into answering that question right now. There's a lot of conflicting reports about telomere, short telomere patients having increased versus decreased risk for rejection, both acute and chronic, and what might play into that. Right now, we have preliminary data suggesting that it's really not just telomere length, but as we've kind of alluded to this whole thing, this combination of age and telomere length, right? that might play the, the, the key into whether these patients are at increased or, or decreased risk for, for both acute and chronic rejection. And this is why we need enthusiastic young scientists to help us answer these questions, because these will have huge implications for our patients going forward. But I think at the end of the day, with, with transplantation specifically, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth reiterating, right? Anticipating the, the problems, right? Anticipating that bone marrow failure, switching your medications, or, or changing your, immuno, your immunosuppression, both induction and maintenance to avoid those medications that are going to suppress that bone marrow and, and using maybe perhaps more of the experimental alternatives to our inhibitors, co-stimulation blockade. Sorry, I think I was on mute again. Thank you so much, Mark. And that's, yeah, I think that's so important, I think, for us to think about not only pre-transplant, but kind of post-transplant complications with having short telomere disorders. And I think we've had such an amazing discussion today for, if I don't know what what you think, but I think we kind of just did a true kind of bench to bedside show on Palm Peeps today, which has been our first. And I think it's been so amazing. And before I know we end with our kind of teaching points from today, I do want us to talk a little bit more about the ATS. RCMB assembly. And I'm hoping, Mark and John, if you can share with us a little bit about your time in the assembly. And in addition to probably meeting the both of you at ATS in DC in just a few weeks, why should attendees of the upcoming ATS conference join the assembly? And what are some opportunities that they can have by doing so? Yeah, no, no. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us first. This has been a lot of fun. And I can't wait to see how I look on TikTok later. Yeah, no, you know, first and foremost, the ATS is a, is a it's, it's a wonderful venue. And the key to to the, the benefits of ATS is it brings together clinicians and scientists and clinician scientists all together. So with a synergistic effect of both identifying the problems to answer and then the scientists, researchers trying to fix those problems, right? And I look at RCMB and and when you go to the ATS meeting or you go to other meetings where RCMB is, is assembly is presenting research. This is where I look to for the fundamental frame shifts in the future of, of medicine, right? This is where, yes, the, you know, there's a lot of great active clinical translational research helping us fix patient problems now, but you go to the RCMB assembly to see, well, what are the huge frame shifts in care that we're going to see five, 10 years from now that are going to make patients' lives better? And so, and on top of that, I mean, you'll the more the more you go to the RCMB posters or presentations, you'll notice it's it's a, a warm and fuzzy crowd. This is a crowd that likes science, that likes teaching, and uh, and it likes to to develop junior investigators. Yeah, I, I just want to be clear to your listeners: I wasn't paid to give this endorsement or <laughs> because of my opinion. I don't think the organizers of this said podcast even knew, but. Yeah, I got my job because hmm. I presented my, as a PhD, I presented a poster at ATS and joined the RCMB. 
talking about TNF2 in patients with IPF, I was standing there at that poster when I struck up a conversation with a physician named John McDyer here at the University of Pittsburgh. That back and forth eventually led them to invite me to come out. And so literally I got my job here, which I I really like my job here, but I got my dream job by standing at my poster uh, at ATS as part of the RCMB. So yeah, it's had a big impact on my career and uh, yeah. All yeah. the that Mark said too, helping patients and stuff like that. I was thinking myself selfishly, but I think what Mark said is true too. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. You could be, I feel like after hearing this, your face is going to be on big posters at the ATS conference. Like I got my dream job at this poster. So yeah. <laughs> my voice will be Mark's face. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, that would be bad for everybody. That's great. Well, thank you guys both so much for coming on the show. I think we really accomplished what we were hoping to, which is throwing a really broad net on this. I mean, this is a, we obviously can't cover all of this in one episode from bench to bedside, but I think we did talk about the common clinical scenarios. You'll see the implications they could have for pre-transplant, post-transplant, and all considerations, and then some of the techniques that led us here and some of the techniques that are ongoing. So we'd like to finish our episode with just a final takeaway point from from each of us that our learners can take home. I think I'm going to say one that John mentioned, which is that when you're thinking about the implications of the disease, it's not the gene, it's the actual telomere length. And that's interesting for me. It's like, I always feel like we send these genetic testing, we say positive, negative, okay, they're at risk, they're not. But what we're really thinking about is how that telomere, what is the actual telomere length the patient has? And then that's going to end up leading to the implications that it has. Christina, do you have a takeaway point? Well, I think I just want to say that maybe we we were the cause to finally have John and Mark agree on something. So <laughs> <laughs> I think we should take credit for that. And I just, yeah, I learned so much today from, from both Mark and John. And I think for extending a little bit, I, I wrote down some words that John had said earlier too. And it, I think what he said was many of the mutations in, in telomere related genes are inherited over generations and each generation in, inherits shorter telomeres. So as you were saying, for how can this play out? It's going to be different genotypes may have different phenotypes. And I think depending on the length of the telomere that they inherit, we're going to see different different clinical phenotypes in our patients. That's great. John, something our learners should remember? Sure. First of all, say thanks for having me. And on the record, I don't agree with Mark Schneider on it. <laughs> <laughs> just want to set the record straight. I would say, look, stay curious. It was a it was a curious and careful physician who made this connection. And even if we don't have a good answer, right? Even if I can't cure it, if I know what that is, that doesn't mean we won't have one tomorrow, but we need the information today. Yeah, great lesson for everyone. And Mark, finally, we'll end with you. Yeah, no, again, thanks for having me. I think the quality of this podcast could be greatly improved by taking everything I said out of this, <laughs> having John talk the whole time. So, so that's good. But yeah, I, I think when you're in the clinic talking to your patient with with interstitial lung disease, look, press those questions that that you would normally say, oh, farmer's lung. Okay. Ask more about that. Ask the next question. Dig down into those details because you'll find some things that can really help you with clinical management down the road. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you guys again. Thank you all for tuning in and listening. Make sure you download our episode in two weeks for our next our next talk. This episode was written, edited, and produced by myself and Christina Montemayor. The music's original music by Eric Rogers, and we'll see you next time.